Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit, charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. Enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Molly Schreiber, is a patient living with multiple health conditions and is an active patient advocate within those communities, which we'll touch on here shortly. She has spent her career working in healthcare and currently works as Savvy Cooperative's community director, where she has the privilege of spending time with patients, caregivers, and patient advocacy-focused organizations. She strives to amplify the voices of the underserved in all facets of her work, which we definitely need. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Right off the bat, first question, where are you calling in from? Baltimore, Maryland. So grew up in Virginia, and now I'm a little bit north of that in Baltimore. Nice. I have to say right off to the listeners, I came across Molly's profile, a post that she put up in LinkedIn. And I don't know if we were connected prior to that post, but I read it. We should have been. We should have been. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Because I love connecting. LinkedIn has been great to me. But what I read in that, and we'll dive into it, is you have a very unique story about your father. So let's talk about him first, and then we'll go into your diagnosis story. Sure. So my dad, type 1 diabetes, he, his father actually had it as well. My dad was diagnosed when he was 10. That was in the early 1960s, late 1950s. Things were quite different back then. Um, he has told me plenty of stories around boiling needles and animal insulin and even, you know, going for eye treatment and literally knowing it had just been tested on animals the very day before <laughs> in the same place. So he had a a bit of a different experience, but he, um, a type one. Did he have a family history? It was anybody else in the family that had it prior. So his dad had it prior. And then also I have a paternal cousin on that side. His brother's daughter was diagnosed um, you know, around the same age as me, but he, he was diagnosed. He had you know, a bumpy teenage life with diabetes, as I think did. I can attest to. <laughs> yeah. And then, it, you know, became pretty regimented and, and diabetes was something that he, his life revolved around. And I mean that in terms of even my husband to this day jokes that my family dinner time is 630 because 630 is when he took his insulin and that's, that's what you did. Yes. So he had a serious regimen and in, in your post that you put out, he had a A1C, which is incredible of 5.0. And yeah. he lived his life by that number. Is that correct? Yeah. The A1C was a badge of honor for him. He would call yeah. me to tell me afterwards. He also was very anti-tech and which is funny because he's not, he wasn't personally anti-tech, but with diabetes, he preferred finger sticks and, you know, doing old school, long last lasting insulin that you yeah. had to take quite, you know, a while before your meal, hence the 630 yeah. dinner time. <laughs> Gosh. And you know, I think it's one of those things. And as I mean, I'm an old school person that's changing here soon, but if it's not broken, why fix it kind of mentality? Exactly. 
But I think, and we'll get into this here in a minute is with the advancements in everything diabetes right now, it's like, you got to, if you can afford it, stay up with the times. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Okay. So family history, hardcore, let's talk about your diagnosis. I grew up seeing my dad have some pretty awful lows. He was someone, and I'd be lying if I haven't been told that I'm very similar, that doesn't handle low with grace. I get a little perturbed, a little angry. And he was someone who was like, I don't need help. I don't need juice. I don't need the I have very vivid memories of my mom forcing juice on him. And we had the, you know, an ambulance called quite a few times due to really bad lows where he just needed additional glucagon at the time. I didn't know that as a kid. So I grew up fairly fearful of diabetes, not, you know, every day having nightmares, but like I would ask him quite often, I get this. And he was like, no, I've asked them. This is before antibody testing. He's had yeah. the one in a million chance. And sure enough, I was diagnosed. So when I was about a little over 34 years ago in elementary school, I got poison ivy kid playing outside. So I was, which led to not eating and drinking a ton, lethargy, even little kids I used to babysit for, play with on the street, kind of called my mom and said, something feels weird. Like something feels off with her. Went to the you know pediatrician multiple times and they said, it's just, you know, growing, changing hormones, whatever. And after the third visit, my dad has had enough and tested my blood sugar. And, you know, of course, nowadays, we would test right away, right? Like I test yeah. my kids if they sneeze too many times or something, <laughs> but it wasn't like that in, in the eighties. Glucose strips were expensive. They weren't disposable in a way, yeah. but so that is really the reason. And I think my dad really believed that I wouldn't get it. And I think he wanted that so badly. And I was tested. I was in the two eighties, not not bad by any means compared to right. what some people get diagnosed at. I was admitted to the hospital and came out with type one and my dad felt like it was his fault. And I, and I knew that. And I didn't really understand that until I had kids of my own. Yeah. And I really understood then, but it, it was, it was almost a blessing to have him because diabetes was part of my life. I grew yeah. up knowing about it and it, it didn't change much in our household. When you gave him injections, right? So you were familiar yes, with the yeah, whole process, when, which is crazy to me. If I had to give my dad a shot, I'd flip out. <laughs> yeah. Right. He had built up so much scar tissue yeah. from the injections that my mom would help out when she could. And then, you know, if my dad went to travel, sometimes he'd take me like on his business trips or we'd go, you know, do stuff. Or maybe my mom was out of town. I was comfortable giving in, in the back of his arm, maybe where I couldn't reach. I know a lot yeah. of us would prop our arms up in a not perfect way to do it. <laughs> And that was just what, what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, I know, and I'm sorry, we'll get into this too, that your father's no longer with us, but I wonder, because I know that I was diagnosed in 1984 and no offense to the medical community, but I was told everything that I couldn't do complications, blah, blah, blah. One of that was with, I should never have children. I would be curious if they told men the same thing. I would be curious of that as well, because I had a very similar experience. I was handed a giant book in the hospital of, you know, of what I could and couldn't do. But fast forward to like first visits to a gynecologist and all of that. And I vividly remember being told as a teenager, you shouldn't have children. Not you can't, but like you won't and you shouldn't. It's too hard on you as a person, but you have this disease too. It was like twofold. I agree with you. I'd be very curious to hear if men are given 
any type of information like that, like we the reproductive have. things. And I think that research has shown now that if no offense again to the male community, but men are more likely to pass it down than women. The percentage yep. there is, is pretty inc- incredible. I'll try to find some facts and throw it in the show notes because it's one of those things that if you don't, you know, you don't learn about those things, which mm-hmm. I find fascinating. So let's talk about your current regimen. So you were diagnosed at age nine ish. Did mm-hmm. you, obviously I would I mean, cause that wasn't, well, I mean, it's 34 years ago. So multiple daily injections and how did that shift and have you ever considered insulin pumps and other devices? Yeah, I was like you said, on daily injections. I even remember that I didn't even have a glucometer at school. Like looking back, I'm like, how <laughs> in the too. world did I survive? <laughs> like someone asked me that and I was like, no, we kept it in the bathroom in my little kit. And they're like, wait, you just kept it in the bathroom? I'm like, yeah, it wasn't even in my bedroom. Like it literally was. And looking back, I'm just like, I'm glad I'm here, right? <laughs> yeah. And so yes, did daily injections and testing. And when I became pregnant with my son, my endo said, I'd like you to consider a pump. And I was like, no way. I'm not having something attached to me. I, I don't want that. And this was back, you know, this was 20 years ago. You know, pumps weren't, they weren't uncommon, but they weren't, you know, as well, common as they are now, Absolutely. like where you see people all the time with them. And she was a great endo. And she said, well, you just wear it for the pregnancy and you can give it back. And I was like, that's fine. I want to do what's best. Like that yeah. works. Quickly fell in love, said they'd have to pry it out of my hands. And she was like, oh, we had no intention of taking that pump back. Like I knew this was going to work for you basically. And then fast forward to now between, you know, two decades, I've tried every brand of pump, I think, except some of the very, very new ones every sensor type you can imagine. And yeah, and I've landed, you know, right now on CGM and and my pump and I can't imagine living without it. I have my blood sugar right above your head right now, actually on my computer. <laughs> like that's how it's in my car play in my car. Like I, yeah. my dad would be baffled to hear. He'd be like, you, you're what, where, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things in our initial conversation too. And this was something I wasn't aware of is that and if it's okay for me to s- disclose what pump you're on. Oh, of course. Yeah. I just wasn't sure. Yeah. Omnipod, yeah, go, five. Omnipod, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the Dexcom, I'm still in the six. It's the seventh not integrated yet with the Omnipod. Yeah, which is just right around the corner. But yeah. you mentioned SugarMate. Mm-hmm. And that being kind of like, and, and I think for us old school folks, like just remembering there are so many factors there that can help with the overall diabetes management. And so I didn't realize, and I even have in my notes, get sugar made (laughs) because of how profound you found it. I mean, like, and how Yeah, I found it from actually a parent talking about monitoring their, their child, I believe in one of the various Facebook groups I've joined over the years, looked it up. It was created by a diabetes patient, just like you and me. And I don't want to use the phrase change my life to be dramatic, but I sleep better with it. And the reason being is and I'm sure others have experienced this, you develop like alarm fatigue from the pump. And I found myself when I actually switched pumps one time because I learned in my sleep how to turn it off and how to bolus, even though it had a security (laughs) screen. I think you're just so used to the clicks. And I was like, this is, this is a problem. Like I, this, this is a problem. And so with sugar mate, I found that I got it, of course, because I wanted a cool new tool, but then I had no idea how helpful it would be. And now it's on my Mac above your head. I'm, you know, 165 and going down by five points now. But the best feature for me 
is that I can set it up to call me if I have a low blood sugar or oh. in the middle of the night. And that you'll wake up for, right? A yeah. phone call typically jars you awake. Whereas if it's my pump, my husband would be like, your, your pump is going off or your pancreas. That's what we call it in my house. <laughs> your pancreas is beeping. And so to me, it was like that, okay, I can go to sleep knowing this will wake. And it has many a night. If I've had a bad night, I'll show you my call log and it's yeah. sugar mate calling. Um, but it was, it took that mental burden off of like, will I be able to hear my pump? Will I, you know, yeah. wake up? Did your husband and your children have access to your numbers? They don't. And I know that I am in the very minority for this because I am one, anyone looking at my numbers, I, so I, with sugar meat, I have it on CarPlay in the car, right? And if I have like the other day, I had a new sensor on and, you know, calibration, sometimes they're wild and you have to do it in increments. My daughter of driving her back to school and she goes, your blood sugar is 230. Are you okay? Why are you driving? You know, are you, is it going up? Is it going down? And I'm like, that's not a real number. I'm just calibrating slowly. And she's like, mm, I don't know. And I went to be like, why? I don't want anyone. <laughs> Plus, is there nothing worse than someone saying to you, is your blood sugar low right now? And you're like, no, I'd, I'd slap somebody. Exactly. <laughs> right. So you can, what I liked about sugar mate too, is that you can have it like, say you don't answer a certain number of calls or mm-hmm. you're below a certain number. It can call someone without them okay. steadily watching your readings. Right. So it's a it's a backup to a backup almost. But <laughs> I don't I don't want anyone to watch my numbers. <laughs> I will say that I think that's pretty common, especially like for people who've had it for quite some time. I can understand, no offense to anybody, but if you have a child, you need to be oh, on top of that, right? Yeah. They might not make the most rational decisions. A spouse, I don't know. Like that would be difficult. I've never shared my numbers with anybody, but my endo or you know certified diabetes educator. Yeah, and I'm like, hey, do I want to? Yeah, you almost want to be like that day. That day (laughs) was a bad day, and and also my husband was like, you know, he's like, I'm I'm with you. I know how to glance at your pump. Like, what am I going to do if I'm not home and I'm watching this? And I was like, that's a a really valid point. I'm usually taking care of myself pretty well. What if he's just watching the arrows and doesn't know she's already had two juice boxes yeah. or she, you know, there's no context to the numbers. Okay. So two things that we talked about, and this is something that one of it, again, going back to your LinkedIn post that most people don't think about. And I do have a bottle of this. That, uh, I think that's, I don't know. Bottle is not the right word. I don't know. Ketone strips. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because, and let's get into this and we'll be brief because I know this, uh, well, your father unfortunately passed away from DKA, the (laughs) man who had a 5.0 A1C for decades. Let's discuss that a little bit. Yeah. He was at that point living alone and, you know, he hadn't done that for a very long time, but he ended up having a low where he fell at home and he had just a very minor you know, brain damage and they wanted him to recover safely rather than be home with stairs and all sure. of that. And so he was in an assisted living, like step down just to sort of get, you know, PT and get all of his services in one place. And one, when he was transferred from the main hospital, they didn't bring his insulin and they didn't transfer insulin with him. And 
this is all in his medical records, which is even more jarring that someone puts this in a medical record and doesn't go, what? And he, you know, he wasn't on technology as I shared. So he was up to yeah. finger sticks and all that. And of course, he was up to the mercy of when they wanted to test his blood sugar or when they decided to do something. And he would be put as non-compliant because he wouldn't eat, but he wasn't eating because he knew his blood sugar was high back and forth. At times, he even had called 911 saying he needed help with his blood sugar from his nursing home bed, which is just wild. And so we thought we had things pretty well Hold sorted. On that too, did, did, they, did, people, did, they, did they show up when he called 911? Were they like... Yeah. And I'm but sure then they're dismissed because like, they yeah. say they have it. Yeah. And then the only, you know, in terms of insulin management, they always say you have to go back to the ICU, basically. Like no other part of the hospital can handle this. Like... Hmm. maddening and again a reminder i'm in baltimore we've got johns hopkins we've got like some yeah. and it wasn't i'm not you know naming johns hopkins it wasn't johns hopkins so we have great hospitals here like great yeah. systems i'm not we have pretty good care and we thought we had things pretty sorted he's doing well he ended up getting a really high blood sugar that no one caught had symptoms of dka we know in retrospect at the time yeah. didn't know they thought he was just not wanting to do pt not wanting to get up not wanting to do things eventually found him unresponsive and sent him of course to the hospital the main hospital and they realized he was in dka and at that point it had progressed so quickly this was within a day day and a half that there was no activity left and he was gone how old was he my dad was 65. Yes, yeah, 65. Yeah. yeah, had always had a great one at UNC. He had no, I mean, he had eye complications as I don't want to say are expected, but for having diabetes for 50 plus years and some of the not so great, you know, advancements didn't come till much later. Yeah. You know, his eyes were good. He cared for himself, like he was working, you know, perfectly yeah. fine. It was definitely a shock, but what was really a shock for me was hearing DKA because I knew what it was, of course, but I never really talked about it. My endo never really said like, do you know about this? Do you know the signs of this? Are you prepared mm -hmm. to tell? I never, and maybe they did when I was a child, but for 30 years, no one asked me if I had ketone strips in my house or if I needed a prescription. They asked me if I had glucagon you know, or now the, the better advancements for, for glucose, but no one ever asked me about that. And I was baffled. <laughs> well, and I haven't had ketone strips since I was a kid. And I really feel like at some point that was like kind of a way of testing your blood sugar. It um, was, I was going to say yeah. that went tandem at times. Yeah. Like you, you didn't use strips like you do now, like test strips, you would also do urine. Like it was kind of used similarly. Yeah, I have a friend, unfortunately, her husband passed away, not from type one diabetes, but he had type one. And she gifted me everything, all of his supplies, which I gifted out to other people. But I kept the ketone strips because I was like, you know what, for those days that I don't feel well, maybe I should check it. And I've never been in DKA, thankfully. But it's one of those things. And just like in our conversation, I mentioned being in the ER and not being able to drink or eat anything because we yes. thought I was having an appendicitis. And thankfully, randomly, I had some glucose tabs, which go straight into your system and not, you don't have to digest them. I think it's a reminder. I don't care if you've had diabetes for one year or 70 years, these tools from the past. I know. are really, really important. Useful. Right. Like you shared glucose tabs with me and I was like, oh, I hate them. Like I hate I, them. Yeah. I was like, I go to fruit snacks, oh. but 
I had shared that I, you know, I've unfortunately asked over rheumatoid arthritis and I've had oh, quite yeah. a few surgeries, nothing crazy, but it, no one ever said, if you get low, have a glucose test. No one, yeah. they just basically said you're canceled is almost the thing, <laughs> you know, like, and so I remember taking tiny sips of juice, hoping no one would know when I, like, yeah. how would they really know? But like, yeah. no one said, mentioned them. Like until I talked to you and I was like, this is silly. I have them. I just avoid them, but I right. could have had them on, you know, on hand. Yeah. Getting into, and I have friends with RA that don't have type one diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. That is, I mean, unfortunately condition like celiac disease that a lot of people with type one have. So when were you diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, just about almost 12 years ago, quite a distance from type one. Yeah, about 20 years or so. Family history of that? No, but my my dad's mother had lupus. So very similar okay. autoimmune fun stuff, but there's no no other arthritis in my family, no. That crazy. I like just house. came about and then it was like, oh yeah, there is a link between, you know, type one and all these autoimmune diseases. And that really opened my eyes. Because I've had Hashimoto's since I was 17, luckily well controlled. And so yeah. I was 17 though. So I wasn't like doing a deep dive to figure yeah. out, you know, like what this linked to. But then when I got RA, you start, you kind of look at it and mm -hmm. you start to realize all the connections these autoimmune diseases, unfortunately, have. And okay. So you have how many, two children? Yes. And I know you made a joke earlier about testing them if they sneeze too many times. And I think a lot of parents are like that has been my experience. Is there any concern? Have you had them tested for or like the trial net or anything to yep. see? That, okay. Yeah. And I still, even though trial net's wonderful and I know I can trust it, what I would do, I limited myself to like a, their birthdays are in the summer and, you know, the fact that they probably associate that with having their blood sugar test, whatever. But I would limit myself to to like one time unless you were very sick because as they go into being teenagers and hormones, they sleep a ton, they eat yeah. a ton, they chug water bottles like their life depends on it. If you're looking at that through the lens of diabetes, it's like red flags. Like, oh right. my gosh, they slept all day. Just rank true fault. Is she peeing again? Like you, you, and I felt like I could go down a dangerous hole if I allowed myself to just constantly yeah. be like testing. And I can tell you that I think I might have shared this with you that in that what five seconds it takes for the the result to yeah. show up on the glucometer, I've picked out their endo. I've picked out where we're going. <laughs> I know who I'm going to call. I've decided all of this, and then they're like. 68 pops up or the 70 and you're like, oh, okay, don't need any of those plans. But the amount that you can accomplish in this five, I'm like, I got this. This pump would be great. This doctor would be great. Yeah. <laughs> but five yeah, and based on their personalities too. Yes. I mean, everybody's so I've different, just got so, it all yeah. figured out. Yeah. <laughs> I want to wrap up this episode with, let's talk about your, and because again, me stalking you on LinkedIn after you put that post up, I didn't have any idea about Savvy the cooperative, the co I mean, it's like, and in our previous conversation, I was fascinated by what all you guys do. So can you speak a little bit about, and this is not, they're not paying me to say this people, I'm genuinely interested. And in, I think the type one diabetes community needs to know about this um, cooperative. So to share a little bit about what you do at Savvy. Yeah, at Savvy, I'm our community director. And that means talking to patients and caregivers and people all day. But what we do, our goal is to make sure that 
patients and caregivers are co-creating all of these tools and apps and products and commercials and everything that's coming at you, that they're co-creating it with the end user, the patient in mind. And that's not rocket science. If you do that, you probably have something that people will want to use, will want to buy, will actually suit their needs. And so that's what we do at Savvy. We do qualitative and quantitative research. We have our own platform and researchers, and we work with all of major pharmaceutical companies, digital health. We want to make sure that patients and caregivers know that all they need is their lived experience and that that's valuable and that they're compensated for sharing that too. A lot of people um, turn to patients as sort of the token patient in the room or the, hey, look what we made you. Don't you love it? And then they tell everyone it's patient approved. And you're like, well, not really. I didn't see it in any other form. And so we just want to make sure that anyone and everyone feels comfortable sharing their opinion, that they know it's of value. Um, And we're across all conditions, but of course, in diabetes, we've done a lot of work there, same with arthritis, but we do work across all conditions across the globe. And the goal is to make sure that people that don't even know that their lived experience has a value that they're participating. Like those are the people I'm trying to talk to every day who, you know, we're not all the same. 10 patients representing the millions with diabetes, as I'm sure some of us have been invited to events and you look around and you start to see the same folks and you're like, it's cool that I've made friends, but is this really representing (laughs) the millions of people that have this disease and is it serving them well? And that's sort of why Savvy was started. And we were started by two patients. Most of us here at Savvy are patients ourselves. So it's, I've I've worked a long time before Savvy. Um, I've been around Mm. and this, I hate to use the word dream job. It sounds cheesy, but there's never a wearing your patient hat, taking it off, working yeah. that. It's it's all being understood and all working for patients. And it just feels really good to do that all day long. I think that the why I've really enjoyed learning more about Savvy is like my personal mission and the diabetes daily grind is, you know, we're all diagnosed with the same disease, but our management is vastly different. And yeah. unfortunately, no disrespect to the medical community, but they're given a, like a protocol when somebody's diagnosed, here's what you do and blah, blah, blah. So there's not as much individualized care as we would like. I think that shifting, you know, I trying to bridge the gap between the, the patient and the medical community and empowering the patient to ask the right questions, to feel comfortable. And also working with the medical community, how to ask us questions. Yeah. Be a partner, right? Yeah. I mean, when I heard somebody who was suffering from diabolemia, unfortunately, was kicked out of, I think, four different endocrinologist offices because there was no, she wasn't showing improvement in her A1C. Oh my goodness. And instead of them asking the right questions to kindly discover what was going on, she suffered and, you know, just. And where exactly did they expect her to get better, you know, at another (laughs) practice? Exactly. Like, did Oh my goodness. And like when you were saying about your dad being non-compliant, I mean, that's how they looked at her. And that's just not fair because you are your own advocate in my personal opinion. So I think we've got a long way to go, but I like what Savvy is doing because I think that that will help guide something. I want to say one last thing from my notes from our original conversation and something that just, I would have never thought of when you talked about Alexa. Oh, yes. People that stutter. Yeah. 
That's a good example of the work that we do. Yeah, we worked with Amazon to make sure that their Alexa devices work better for people with a stutter or stammer. Mm -hmm. And we found the patients with the condition and they we worked had them work with Amazon, made sure they were consented and and Mm -hmm. paid for their time. And then now everyone's Alexa has a patch in it that allows, and I always say her, and I'm like, I guess it's her, I don't know, allows (laughs) Alexa to respond better to people that have a vocal impairment for whatever reason. And my favorite part is that you don't have to go to Amazon and raise your hand and say, I have a problem talking and I need this for my Alexa. They all just have it in case someone needs it. And I think that's just such a great way to take the real person with the problem. And now technology works better for everyone because not everyone talks about their illness or Mm. wears it as a badge on the, you know, on them all day long, but we're impacting those people too. And so that's why I really love what Savvy does and, and making sure that patients from a variety of backgrounds, and like you said, all different ways of managing their condition are represented in whatever tools or, or treatments are coming out. The lofty goal, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. And at least somebody's working on it. And as a co-op, that makes it even more like yeah. exciting in my perspective. Listen, Molly, thank you so much for joining the show. And I look forward to learning more about what you're doing and I'm sorry for your father's terrible passing. And I think that's another reminder for the diabetes community that we have to take care of each other, especially for those who are aging. There's a future podcast coming with (laughs) how to navigate diabetes when you are put into an assisted living. What are your rights? Unfortunately, that story is not one that's, it's unique, but it's still one that we hear more often than we would like. And especially as our parents are getting older, I think about those things. I would (laughs) definitely want to listen in on that one. That's a a real (sighs) fear. I think a lot of us have either being in the hospital or eventually not being able to care for ourselves the way we're used to. Got to be an advocate. And sometimes when you don't have that voice, especially when you're elderly, that's, that's a difficult one. So again, Molly, thank you so much. And I will definitely be in touch. Thank you for having me. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone.